Okay, we are in uh, Matthew chapter 12. And we had just read the portion last week from 9 through 14, how Jesus healed the hand of a man who had, had a withered hand, and it was a setup by the Pharisees to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And then it says in verse 15, But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to tell who he was. You know, so at this point in his ministry, he warned them not to tell who he was. There was a change in his ministry, and we're about to get into that. But before I do that, let me read this next portion. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This word Gentiles can also be translated nations, but it means the non-Jews. This, this portion that we just read is a prophecy from the Old Testament that Jesus would reach out specifically to non-Jews. So there's many prophecies about his reaching out to the Jewish people. But there's also a prophecy that he would reach out to the non-Jews. And it says that in verse 18, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And again in verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And we're going to see this change that's about to take place in his ministry because of the rejection by the, the Jewish leaders. I want to point out though, in verse 20, in verse 19, and he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus was not a a street minister. Not that there is anything against it. Jesus stood up in the temple and preached. Jesus stood up in the synagogues and preached. Jesus went into the countryside and his disciples and many hundreds and thousands sat at his feet and he openly preached. But in the streets we later see that it was an active place for ministry by the apostles. Paul often preached in the streets. Peter preached in the streets. So it's actually a very scriptural thing to do although Jesus Himself used different venues. And that shows us that God's people are called at times to different sort of ministries. And it is a good thing. God has given different gifts for different sort of ministries. And in verse 20 it says, And a battered reed, this is, this is Matthew 12, verse 20, And a battered reed He will not break off, and a smoldering wick He will not put out, until He leads justice to victory, and in His name, the Gentiles will hope. You see, he says, a battered reed he will not break off. Have you ever come to the point that you felt like you couldn't go on? Like you were hurting so much inside? And Jesus said, a battered reed he will not break off. And a smoldering wick he will not put out. If there's any life in you, any glimmering hope of the Spirit, Jesus is not going to put that thing out but He's going to try to fan it into a flame. If you're a broken reed, He will not try to break you. He is not coming to judge you. He is coming to reach out to you and to touch you. 
Do you feel so overcome? Jesus is there to reach out to you. If you feel battered and broken, if you feel like you've gone too far from the Lord, or that His love has never been demonstrated to you in a long time, just remember, He has not come to destroy you. He has come to love you and to draw you back in. His love is very real. And this is what He comes to do. Jesus, it says, did not come to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn it. And He says, a battered reed He will not break off, and a smoldering wick He will not put out. Jesus has come to reach out to you. Until He, until he leads justice to victory, Jesus will have a victory in your life. If you will only allow Him, He will bring your life to victory because He wants a good life for you. And in His name, the Gentiles will hope. This was a foreign concept to Israel in this day. Very little appreciation for these prophecies. But Jesus came to reach out to the Gentiles, and though He Himself had a limited ministry to the Gentiles, He Himself spent the vast majority of His ministry time in ministering to the Jews. He raised up apostles that went out and preached to the Gentiles. And He raised up Paul, who He said would, his be, would be His apostle to the Gentiles. And that ministry of Paul's was far more active and became far more long-lasting than the ministry to the Jews. And now we're going to read down in verse 22. And I'm going to title this portion, Jesus versus the Pharisees. You're going to see the Pharisees knock head-on with Jesus. And you're going to see the result of this. This is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. And this portion in Matthew 12, verse 22 through 32, is critical for understanding the change in Jesus' ministry that is inexplicable without understanding this portion in Matthew 12, verse 22 through 32. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless the first, he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this age nor the age to come. This is the unpardonable sin, and we're about to cover this and understand this, and understand the change that occurred in Jesus' ministry. Let me reiterate and go into more detail some things that I've mentioned in the past as we've looked through this book. There was the Mishnaic Law. These were laws that were written by the Jews themselves, by the Pharisees, 
There were 613 commandments given by Moses, 613 given by God. Around these were written hundreds and sometimes thousands around each one of these 613 so that the Jews would be sure not to violate the 613. So, for example, around the Sabbath day, it says that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath day. Now, we are freed from that. Believers are no longer under that. In fact, we are no longer any, under any one of the 613 commandments. You say, what about the Ten Commandments? We're not under them. Now, the only reason we're under nine of the ten is because that they were mentioned in the New Testament. And when they're embodied in the New Testament, then we are under them. And so we, we observe those commandments that are in the New Testament. Jesus freed us from the 613 in the Old Testament. You say, well, the Ten Commandments we should observe, the others we don't have to. There was never such a distinction in the Old Testament. Never. If you want to obey, if you want to put yourself under the Ten Commandments, you have to put yourself under the 613. You can't pick and choose. And in fact, there are many such laws that would make your life and my life very difficult. For example, a man is not allowed to sit in a seat where a woman has sat who has been in her menstrual cycle, according to one of the 613 commandments. Now, did you find out who sat in the seats before you sat down? You may be violating something if you want to be under the 613 commandments. So it's a tough thing to live under. It really is. You don't want to have to live under it and thank God that you've been delivered from it. You will meet Christians who will say to you, you really shouldn't eat pork. Well, if you don't want to eat pork for health reasons, that's fine. But there is no such commandment that you cannot eat pork because we've been delivered from that. And the New Testament, in fact, says you're free to eat. Now, you can use some common sense and discretion to balance your diet. To do things, but you can eat whatever you want to eat now. To put it under something that it's, if you look at somebody, oh, he doesn't eat pork, he's really spiritual. There's no spirituality in this. He's really legalistic and under the law. Don't put yourself under that. And you will meet Christians as you go through life that will say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. If it say, show me in the New Testament. If it's in the Old Testament, remember, Jesus fulfilled the law. If they want to be under the dietary restrictions, they've got to be under them all. Paul said, if you want to live under the law, if you violate one of them, you're guilty of all of them. You have to observe all of them. The only one that is not embodied of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament is the law concerning the Sabbath day. We're no longer under that law. There is great wisdom in maybe taking a day off each week, but we're no longer under such a commandment. And in fact, Jesus says that He gives us the ability as believers to enter into His rest. But there were Mishnaic laws, so they had over a thousand laws around the Sabbath day of things that they couldn't do. And so, for example, another law in the Old Testament was you shouldn't boil a kid in its mother's milk. It's very specific. You shouldn't milk a goat and then, and, and, and then kill the baby goat and boil him in that specific milk. Because of that, the Jews to this day, the Orthodox Jews, will not keep milk and meat in the same refrigerator, lest one molecule of milk touch a molecule of meat and perchance that it happened to be from the, the, the mother and the, the kid of, of, of that mother is in that refrigerator too. I mean, it just, just astronomical odds against that. And because of that, if you go to Israel to this day, you have coffee in a restaurant 
that is serving meat. You cannot get milk for your coffee. You cannot. I was in Israel last year, and I had a cup of coffee, and I asked for milk, and they said, no, 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 no. We don't serve milk. I mean, it's this big faux pas that I should just ask for milk, you know, in this restaurant. They live under that to this day. There was never such a commandment. That's the Mishnaic law. There were thousands of Mishnaic laws. Jesus never observed the Mishnaic laws, and that's what bothered the Pharisees. They thought any good prophet, any good spiritual man, would certainly obey the laws that they had written. Jesus obeyed the, the Levitical laws, the 613 commandments. He fulfilled every one of them, and therefore we don't have to. The Mishnaic laws, however, were made by the Pharisees to be equal to the law of Moses. There was the law of Moses, the 613 commandments, and they raised the traditions of men to be equal with that. If you do that, you're in trouble. Because there are churches today that will raise their laws to be equal with the Bible, and that's a big mistake. Because there's no end to the laws of men that they'll put upon you. Do this, don't eat, do that, eat this on a certain day, and don't eat that on a certain day. The other thing that the Pharisees taught is that there were two types of miracles. That anyone called of God, for example, a prophet like Elijah, Moses, or Elisha, could perform miracles. But there were three miracles that were reserved only for the Messiah. The first miracle was the miracle concerning healing a leper. From the time that the law was complete, in the book of Leviticus, no Jew had ever been healed of leprosy. No Jew. Naaman was a Syrian. He was healed. Uh, Moses' sister, Miriam, was healed, but she was healed after the law was written. Once the law was complete, nobody was healed. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders said, only the Messiah will be able to do this. Because there's two chapters, Leviticus 13 and 14, that talk about what to do with a Jew who's been healed of leprosy. Why would God have it if no Jew was ever healed? So they said only the Messiah would be able to do this. It was very specific. You had to offer up two birds, then have seven days of observation, where they observe him and they say, was he really a leper to begin with? On the eighth day... They offer up a trespass offering, a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a meal offering. And then they apply the blood to the healed leper and then anoint the leper with oil. And once the rabbis then went through this, only then was he deemed really cleansed of leprosy. And the rabbis taught that only the Messiah would be able to do this. Now turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, it says in verse 12, And while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Okay, so he was in a city. The man was covered with leprosy. Remember, Luke, who wrote this gospel, was a physician. None of the other gospels record how much leprosy the man had. The man's body was covered with leprosy. That means he was very near death. Remember, leprosy breaks out in a small spot and then begins to spread throughout the entire body over a period of years. So this man was very near death, covered with leprosy. In verse 13, And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed, and immediately the leprosy left him. It's interesting that Jesus touched him. Jesus could have just spoken the word and he would have been healed. But Jesus touched the leper, which normally would defile a man. But Jesus knew that as soon as he touched him, he would be cleansed. 
And he ordered him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. So Jesus told him, don't tell anyone because your leprosy is not really deemed complete until you fulfill the law. So go and fulfill the law, have the offerings made, show yourself to the priests, let them do their work, and let it be a testimony to them. This sparks, this event sparks a seven-day investigation. What the Pharisees taught is that if the Messiah really is there, they have to do an investigation. If there's a claim of Messiahship. And since a leper was healed, what they had to do was find out, was he really a leper to begin with? Was he indeed healed? And if so, by whom? Who healed this leper? And so in Luke 5.16, Jesus prays for them. It says, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus is praying, probably, that the religious leaders would come to see him as Messiah. Because he says, in verse 14, let it be a testimony to them. So you see that Jesus prayed for their eyes to be opened. This Mishnaic investigation took on two stages. The first stage was pure observation by the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, remember, had 71 people. They would send representatives and they would go and they would, they would ask no questions. They would make no comments. They would only observe. And they would observe and see if the, the ministry, the work that was being done was significant. Was this man indeed healing many people? Was the teaching consistent with the Scriptures? And if it was significant, then it would move into phase B where there were questions being answered. Many questions would be fired at him. John the Baptist, in fact, went through both phases of the investigation, A and B. So if you, if, uh, if you turn now to, just look down in the same passage in Luke chapter 5, verse um, 27. In Luke 5, 27. So after this, Jesus goes in, now remember, Luke is the only gospel of the four gospels that goes in chronological order. We know that because Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, that he wrote this chronologically. All the other gospels jump around. This is the only one in chronological order. So if you want to see the sequence of events, you read Luke. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind, and he got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a great reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And so you see, what happens is, this moves now into a phase of questioning. They're asking questions. Now let's look back in, just before that in Luke chapter 5, verse um, verse 21. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? So you see, in, in this portion, in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 21, 22, this is phase A. They are just observing him. And they're questioning him in their hearts. Do you ever have a question in your heart? But you kept your mouth shut, but people knew what you were thinking. Does that ever happen to you? My wife is able to read my mind. She knows what I'm thinking. I'm just telling you. Women can do this. 
They can read a man's mind. They know what they're thinking. I don't even have to talk. I mean, Shireen just knows what I'm about to say. And before I say it, she says, you're about to say such and such, aren't you? Uh, I was just going to say I love you. <laughs> so just, she knows exactly what I'm going to say. Jesus knew exactly what they were going to, what they were reasoning in their hearts. And they addressed, he addressed their, their concerns. Now in this phase, in, 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 and it's interesting, if you look in, the, in verse 27. And one day he was, I'm sorry, in verse 17. Right after he, he heals this leper in verse 17. And one day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Remember what I told you that the Sanhedrin would send a delegation? They sent their delegation. This is very strange for some man to be teaching and all the religious leaders come from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem. This was the observation period. And Jesus went and he healed a man, and we discussed this healing la- uh, last week, but he healed them knowing what they were thinking in their hearts. <clears throat> and now, in, in verse 27 onward, they, is investigation phase B, they start to question him. And so they start questioning him, and, and, and they ask him, hey, what's going on here? And, and in verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So you see, they begin to question them. The Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday. And remember what I told you about fasting? When you're fasting, you want everyone else to fast. And that's why Jesus said when you're fasting, you wash your face and you keep your mouth shut about your fasting. You keep that between you and God. Alright? Fasting is a good thing. Jesus said when you fast, when you pray, when you give alms, assuming that we do fast. But the tendency is, when we undergo fasting, is we want everybody else to feel this pain with us. And so here the Pharisees say, hey, John John the Baptist's disciples fast, and we fast. How come your disciples don't fast? And remember what happens when you're fasting, you want other people to fast too. So, So the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples are there, I guess you could say belly aching together about their fasting. And, and being concerned about this sort of thing. And Jesus said, look, they don't have to fast now, but a time will come when I depart and then they'll fast. So once Jesus departs and he's departed now, fasting now becomes optional. We don't have to fast. There are no prescribed days for our fasting, but it becomes optional. It is a good thing to fast and it draws you closer to God. You start to feel weak in your spirit, start to feel withdrawn from God, spend three days fasting and praying. Spend three days only drinking water and I bet you your mind will start... Uh, uh, getting off the things of the world really quickly. And so they start to question him in this phase, and then they go in and they, and, and they question him some more. But basically what he sums up in Luke chapter 5, verse 30 onwards, is A, the sick need healing, and, and, and since you don't view yourself as sick, you're not going to be healed. 
Secondly, that sacrifice is insufficient without mercy. And thirdly, He's not called the righteous, but sinners. And you already view yourself as righteous, so you're not coming in. More questions begin to to come in in, in 33 onward, and, and they talk about this fasting issue and so on. In Luke chapter 6, there's more questions regarding the Mishnaic Law and the Mosaic Law. And it even begins to bump up upon the traditions of the fathers. And you can see this that in verse, chapter 6, verse 1 of Luke. Now it happened that as he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then Jesus begins to quote the scripture to them. Because there was no such law about picking up grain and just eating it. You weren't supposed to be doing work and threshing on those days, but no problem about eating it. And Jesus then goes and addresses this sort of thing. And then let's turn back to Matthew chapter 12. Because now is the key event that's going to happen. They finished the investigation and they found him to be insufficient. And in Matthew chapter 12... Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, Jesus casts out a demon that had caused uh, a, a, a demon-possessed man that was both blind and mute. And remember what we said? One of the things that only the Messiah would be able to do was cast out a demon from a man that was mute, that couldn't speak. Because the Jewish way of casting out demons was to speak to the man, get the name of the demon, then cast out the demon by name. Sometimes Jesus did that, like with the Gadarean demoniac. He said, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then he cast them out. Other times he didn't. Jews did practice exorcism, because Jesus there says, um, verse 27 of Matthew 12, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So in other words, he concedes that this is a normal practice for Jews to do. But they taught that only the Messiah would be able to heal a man who was, who, who was a mute and also filled with a demon. And he cast him out. And instead of them acknowledging him, they said he's filled with devils. And that's why he did it. In fact, they said in verse, in verse uh, uh, 20, 23, it says, And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, The man cannot be the son of David, can he? You see what happens? Jesus casts out a demon from the man who's mute, and what, is he, what did the crowd say? This must be the son of David. Why? Because they'd been taught only the Messiah could do this. Well, the Pharisees, instead of conceding to what they themselves had taught, they said, well, in verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul actually means Lord of the Flies. So they, they call him the head of the demons. And... Uh, uh, that, that's in fact what they say. So, so Jesus did the Messianic miracle and they say that it's, it's as a result of his being demon-possessed. Then Jesus teaches them and he says, look, Satan can't cast out Satan. If I was from Satan, I couldn't cast them out. He says that, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then Jesus proclaims upon them the unpardonable sin. Let me mention here what the unpardonable sin is, because sometimes you'll find believers and they'll, say, they'll do this to you. They'll say, ah, oh, I think I've just blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I can't now be forgiven. If you've never seen that, you will. I've seen all sorts of things in, in my 27 years of being a Christian. 
all sorts of things, and, and, and people will undergo this great sense of condemnation, thinking that they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You cannot commit the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is the national sin of Israel by rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus on grounds of his demon possession. The unpardonable sin is this. It is the national sin of Israel by rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus on the grounds of his demon possession. It is national, not individual. And it is by that generation, and we will see that in this portion. Individuals like Paul could escape from that by believing. The nation could not escape. And 40 years later, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. 40 years later. Now... We live under a time of grace where everything is forgivable by Jesus Christ, regardless of the nature of it. Paul was the greatest sinner, the Bible says, and he was forgiven. Everything now can be forgiven. So you see in verse 30 of Matthew chapter 12, And he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Jesus proclaims upon them the unpardonable sin. That was upon that generation that, and that was to be overcome in Jerusalem 40 years later. It was a national sin. In verse 12, in, in ch Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and 39, they demand another sign from Jesus. In verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He says, the only sign you're going to get now, Israel, is this. No more signs for you. And this is why the whole ministry of Jesus changed. He says, the only signs you're going to get are this. You're going to get the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is the resurrection from the dead. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. This was given to them, and we'll see it in Lazarus. It was given to them again in Jesus, and it will be given to them a third time in the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And after those two witnesses are raised from the dead, the nation of Israel, it says, will repent and be saved. So you say, when is Israel going to turn and be saved? When the two witnesses in the book of Revelation are raised from the dead. Those, that hasn't yet happened. And that happens halfway into the time of tribulation. The church will already have been gone by then. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40 through 45, he talks about the queen of the south. And he says, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south, meaning the one who came from, from, from the queen of Sheba who had come to see Solomon, they responded to a glimmer of light and they were, came. See in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. 
and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. If God speaks to us and gives us some sign, some verse of Scripture, and we do not respond to it, the glimmer gets a little bit darker. We must respond to what God has given. If you pray and you say, God, show me some sign today, and God shows you that sign, respond to it. Don't neglect it. Because the pattern we see here is, Jesus said, they responded to the glimmer of light given to them. And then He told the Jews on that day, He says, here the Messiah is here and you're not responding. They will stand up and condemn you on the day of judgment. Christ's ministry, Jesus' ministry, changes inexplicably in Matthew chapter 12. The signs previous to Matthew chapter 12 came upon people, uh, uh, the signs were for authenticating who He was. Now the signs change. Before, it was for the masses in response to personal needs, He would heal them. He would heal the masses in response to personal needs. You see Jesus healing before these events in response to personal needs. There was no need for faith. After this, there was only healing based on faith. Before this, people proclaimed openly that He was Messiah. After this, they stopped proclaiming. He told them, don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. And I'll show you the verses on this. And unless we understand Matthew chapter 12, you don't understand why in one context does He say, don't tell people. In another context, He says, tell people. It's because once the unpardonable sin came, His ministry changed. Before, He said, proclaim what great things God has done for you. Now He says, tell nobody. He institutes a policy of silence. Prior to this, he was proclaiming his Messiahship. Now he says, tell nobody that I am the Messiah. Look in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Before he taught clearly, like his Sermon on the Mount was taught clearly. It says the people heard this and they said, this guy teaches so wonderfully, very different than our scribes. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, that's not parables. He taught directly and clearly. Now after this, he only spoke in parables. Look in Matthew chapter 13. Right after he proclaims the unpardonable sin in Matthew chapter 12, he starts speaking in parables. He gives a parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and we'll cover the specifics of it later. But look in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus said to them, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But who, he who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing... They do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes ahead and he quotes something from the Old Testament. And, and, uh, and then Jesus would, would go and describe everything to them it talks about in, in, in private. He would describe to them. So he takes on this new way of teaching. He's teaching parabolically. He teaches in parables. His disciples, he would explain to them what it meant, but for the masses, it would hide the truth. Before this event, he never spoke in parables. Only after this event. Unless we understand the unpardonable sin, we can't understand why Jesus changes his ministry on that day. 
Matthew 10, verse 34, it, 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 it talks about how Jesus spoke in parables only. Remember, Matthew jumps around. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, it says... Oh, no, that's not the verse. Um, got it mixed up there. If you look in, in, in uh, Mark, Mark 4.33. Mark 4.33... Mark 4.33 says, With many such parables he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak a word to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. You see, after Matthew 12 and the unpardonable sin, he changed his ministry. That's where the parable started. If we reject the light that God gives, eventually blindness sets in. You can only go running from God so far. You can't reject God forever before blindness will set in. Then Jesus moves into a time where he, they question, he questions precisely the authority of the Mishnah, the authority of men's rules and men's regulations. It says, look over in Mark, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Talk about in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Talk about uh, uh, the Pharisees in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come in from the market, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other such things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washings of cups and pitchers and copper pots, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus responds, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy, prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, The people honors me with their lips, but with their heart they're far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold it to the traditions of men. This is, I'm going to wrap up with this thought. Remember the difference between the traditions of men and the commandments of God. Smoking is not a sin, it is merely stupid. It is not a sin. Alright? There's nowhere in the Bible that it says smoking is sinful. And Christians will quote to you, well, the Bible says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we should not defame our bodies. And since smoking hurts our bodies, we should not smoke. Well, if that's the case, you know, a lot of times we serve those muffins here on Sunday. Those muffins are just deadly. Unit per unit, they're less bad. than they, 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 Unit per unit, they're worse than cigarettes. And let me show you my rationale. Now, this is, this is not Bible. This is gym tour theory. You take those muffins. They're about this big, Right? There are guys that smoke a pack of cigarettes a day for 40 years. And they're still alive after 40 years of smoking a pack a day. That's 20 cigarettes a day. If you eat 20 of those muffins a day, in 6 months you're going to be 300 pounds, and in 12 months you're dead. I guarantee you, you, cannot, eat 12 of, uh, you cannot eat 20 of those muffins a day and not die. Unit per unit, they're probably worse for you than smoking. That's just a thought. Again, that's... that's a, but if you think about it, I mean, who could eat 20 of those muffins in a day, every day? 
and not die. So much for the muffins. Maybe we should only serve muffins next week. (laughs) But there's nothing inherently sinful in it. It's just stupid to eat 20 muffins a day. There are laws of men that people like to put on it. You have to eat fish on a certain day. There is nowhere in the Bible that says that. Nowhere. When you start putting laws out that are not in the Bible, you start having real problems. Now, you can do whatever you want for yourself. You know, it's not against the Bible to have a drink. I don't drink alcohol by choice because I think I want to demonstrate to my children a certain model that I'd rather they didn't drink. And so I don't drink in front of them. But it has nothing to do with the Bible saying it. Jesus, in fact, drank. Jesus turned water into wine. Really good wine. The Bible does have something that says that you shouldn't be drunk. So there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol according to the Bible. But there is something wrong according to the Bible about being drunk. It says, do not be drunk with wine. It says that in the New Testament. So we're not to be drunk. To the extent that wine, that alcoholic products are like drugs, and we begin to lose our sense of who we are when we're drunk, drugs would probably fit into that same category. But we have another thing concerning drugs, and that's called the law. The law of the land. The law of the land says we are to obey the law of the land. In Romans chapter 13, it talks about this. We're to obey the laws that are before us. So there are certain laws that are there, the law of the land that we're to obey. The only time I see in Scripture where where we're given in the Scripture the right to violate the law of the land, it's for three things. It's to preserve human life, It's to preach the gospel and it's to accept the Lord. There are examples of this in the scriptures. That when the law of the land was to take a life, those who preserved the life were blessed. When the law of the land was to not preach the gospel, they preached the gospel and that was God's way. When the law of the land was to to not get saved, they got saved anyway. Those are the only times I see in scripture where we are allowed to disobey the law of the land. Jesus said, your traditions of men make the word of God no effect. Some of you will probably know people in certain denominations that have all these gazillion rules around them and they don't know anymore what's the Bible and what's not. The New Testament has about 150 commandments and they'll keep us quite busy. We don't need any others put upon us. And in fact, the scriptures say, I put no more upon you. And then what happens? Men want to put this on us and that on us and this. You can do whatever you want for yourself, but you can't put it on others. Then it becomes legalism. So, for example, playing cards. I mean, it used to be if you had a deck of cards in your home, you were immoral. You were a stinking sinner if you had a deck of cards in your home. And now you can get a deck of cards with the name of the church on the back of it. What, has God changed? No, it was because that was a law of men. That was never a law of God. It used to be, even when I was a kid, you didn't go to the cinema. You know, the cinema was considered bad. You know, if you were, if, if you were a good person, you didn't go to the cinema. Like, you know, you, you, you're looking at me like, what are you talking about? You didn't go to the movies. 
You didn't go to the movies. People who went to the movies were bad. Movies were bad. And church deemed movies bad. And so you didn't go to movies if you were a good Christian. And I wasn't a Christian, so I went to movies. But those were the laws of the land. And you can find other laws that will be put upon you that have nothing to do with the Scriptures. Always go back to the Scriptures and you will do very well just dealing with the Scriptures. And Jesus said, your traditions of men have made the Word of God no effect. He says, your disciples, they said, don't wash their hands before they eat. You go, into, you go to Israel, you go into any Orthodox restaurant, there's a, there's a thing there where you wash your hands before you eat. Not that it's wrong to wash your hands before you eat. It's probably smart to do it, considering some of the things that people touch. But it's probably not going to kill you not to wash your hands. It really won't. You know, in, when I grew up, there were no antibacterial soaps. And we ate all the time without washing our hands. And we'd sneeze right into our hand and go shake 12 other people's hands and go eat. And everybody else would eat. And people didn't die. Well, maybe they did, but we didn't know what they were dying from. But, but there's nothing scripturally that we're violating by doing that. But it may be wise to use antibacterial soaps. Although, I'll tell you, I just read an article that... 70% of the antibacterial agents are ending up in, in, in the waterways and just tearing it up. I mean, there's going to be some changes here. So all these people that use the antibacterial soaps who love to think green, just remind them that now they're trashing the environment through all this. And then, and then they're caught up and they're going to you know, have, all, go, go, have all sorts of fits about this and not know what to do. And so you're going to find biodegradable antibacterial soaps. I guarantee it. That's the next thing coming down the line. Um, anyway, maybe we should do that. We do it as a class and make some money on this. <laughs> so Jesus, though, slams them on this point, that your traditions of men have made the word of God no effect. So he comes right up directly against the Mishnaic law and just throws it down. He says, I will not have any part of that. Next time we're going to cover how they attempt now to catch him, not against the Mishnaic law, which he refused to observe, but against the actual law of Moses. They tried to trap him, violating the law of Moses, and they're unable to trap him. But you will see as you read throughout scriptures, remember, only Luke follows chronological order. And when you follow that order, then it begins to make sense. That change occurs because of the unpardonable sin, and that's when he starts speaking in parables. That's when he heals people based on faith. And without faith, he didn't heal them. And that's when he stopped saying, that's when he started to say, don't tell anybody who healed you. Before that, he said, go and proclaim. The only exception to this is when he healed a Gentile, the Gadarene demoniac. He healed the Gentile and he said, go and tell your family what's going on. Because they were non-Jews and he encouraged them to go and tell. And the man went and told his family. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word, for how freeing it is. Lord, I thank You because You came with, a new, command, with, a, with new commandments founded upon better promises. That You fulfilled the entire Old Testament law and we no longer have to live under it. Father, I pray that You take these young people and You let their lives be free in Christ to follow Him, to follow His ways.
Father, I pray that they would learn and grow in the things of God. Father, I pray that you'd open their eyes to understand the Scriptures. And they would learn how wonderful it is and how freeing it is to follow Jesus. And Father, I thank you because you drop in glimmers of life and hope into these young lives. Father, may they not reject it, lest it grow dimmer. But Father, may they respond to the light that you give. Respond to your teachings. Respond to your ways. And Father, I pray that if there be someone here who's just a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, that you would so encourage them and lift them up that they would not lose hope, but they would come and learn and grow in you. Father, I pray your mercies to be upon them and bless them richly. In the name of Jesus, amen.